Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host, Mark Weedman. Today, we're talking about food, from the farm to your fork to your recycling or compost bin. I'm pleased to welcome Mark Schneider, the CEO of Nestle. Nestle is the world's largest food and beverage company with more than 2,000 brands and products in 188 countries. What does Nestle have to do with the transition? Well, the processing, the packaging, the distribution, and the consumption of food actually produces about a third of human greenhouse gas emissions. In this episode, we're going to talk about why and how Nestle is transforming their value chain to drive the transition to a low-carbon economy. So, Mark, welcome to The Bid. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start by talking about Nestle and your business? To a U.S. audience, Nestle is mainly known as a chocolate maker. But of course, we do cover a wide range of food and beverage products. In fact, we're the world's largest food and beverage company with about 94 billion Swiss francs of revenue in 2022. And we cover all the main categories in food and beverage, from coffee to pet care to medical nutrition, infant nutrition, and of course, the chocolate that we're so well known for. That also means we're exposed to a wide number of agricultural commodities that are needed to make these products. Let's talk about Nestle and carbon emissions and start by why does it matter to Nestle what your carbon emissions are? It matters to Nestle because food production around the world is very much linked to greenhouse gas emissions. So depending on what study you look at, between a quarter and a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are caused by agriculture, so food and beverage production. And unlike many other activities, eating and drinking is not something that we can go without. It's the leading company in the space. We feel an obligation to do something. I believe this is part of future-proofing the business. Just like you future proof the business through convincing research and development and new products. So one additional feature that you want to work for is a better greenhouse gas footprint. What is your roadmap layout in a few simple bullets and how are you tracking? So minus 20% by 2025. This is judging from 2018 levels and it's regardless of the growth we achieve in between. As the totality of all greenhouse gases, so not just CO2. So that means we also need to tackle methane, which in some cases is trickier than CO2. It's minus 50% by 2030, and it's that famous net zero by 2050. What are you most concerned about in terms of achieving your 2030 objective? What's the biggest obstacle? There's a set of pretty steep mountains to climb. There's not just one individual obstacle here, but clearly... We all had to run these projects. Some of them have tremendously time. So something you're doing now may give your results two or three years down the road only. So learning how to track that to be sure that there is consistent improvement over time. I think that's also something that we had to train the organization on because we had not done it before. Could you explain how food and the production of food and its disposal emits carbon? How does that work? There's, of course, the carbon footprint of our operations. Some of the operations in our factories, the logistics, both inbound, in factories and outbound, all the things you would associate with the company's operations, including travel. That is the easiest part. And that's the part where we're already picking a lot of low-hanging fruit. 
And then there is more than two-thirds that really sit in our agricultural supply chain. So this is the greenhouse gas emissions that come about as a key commodity ingredients that we use for our products are produced. And that's the hardest part, and that's the steepest hill to climb. So what produces those carbon emissions in the chain from planting food to getting it into your factories? Well, it depends on the ingredient, but the key greenhouse gas emissions are related to everything associated with livestock. Think about dairy production, think about meat. So there you have to, first of all, generate the food, and then cattle in particular, you have methane emissions that come from the detection. And so it all adds up to a very powerful mix of CO2 emissions, methane emissions. They're very significant and a lot higher than with plant-based products. So animals, especially cows, lead to lots of carbon emissions. But there's also carbon emissions even with producing plants and vegetables and other ingredients that feed into your food. Where does that carbon get emitted? So a lot there has to do with the way we do our farming. In some cases, unfortunately, there's deforestation to begin with to create farmable land. Then the way we look after our soil, uh, we tend to deplete the soil. And that, of course, leads to a lot of CO2 release from that soil into the atmosphere. It also leads to degradation of the quality of soil over time. So clearly, changing our methods of farming and switching to either conservation agriculture or regenerative agriculture is a key unlock when it comes to improving the greenhouse gas footprint. What is regenerative agriculture? Some of the common themes as part of regenerative agriculture are taking good care of the soil, keeping it covered at all times, having cover crops, having intermittent cropping, minimum or no tillage, and just trying to keep the water management of the soil that's optimal. This way, over time, not only do you avoid the depletion of the soil, but you can also, in fact, add to it and capture some additional carbon. There's also conservation agriculture. All of them are a material improvement over some of the traditional agricultural methods that are being used widespread today. So how are you working with your supply chain? How do you work with farmers? So this is the key challenge. In addition to intermediate suppliers, commodity exchanges, we're dealing with six to 700,000 farmers directly around the world, or in some cases, cooperatives. And you can't just throw your weight around and tell them how to do it in a different manner the next day. You have to give them help. They're the most exposed part of the supply chain. They're immediately exposed to the vagaries of the climate and weather. Their capital cushion is a lot lower than many of the other businesses in the supply chain. And so this is where we need to give a helping hand. We call that concept a just transition. So it's about giving technological help. It's about also giving some of the micro lending and financial support or paying a premium for products that are made according to these practices. Mark, give us some examples. So a good example is in cocoa farming, where independent of the size of the farm, we are paying for a number of practices that we consider to be important for the long-term success of the farm and also for preserving human rights and avoiding child labor, for example. So independent of the size of the farm, if you send your kids to school, we pay a premium for that. Pruning your trees, we pay a premium for that. And if you fulfill all of the requirements, we pay some additional premium on top of that. So this way, we're helping the farmer switch to more regenerative practices, at the same time avoid issues such as child labor and lead to higher farmer incomes. What's the biggest resistance that you hear from farmers? The initial conversion from that traditional industrial agriculture to regenerative agriculture, day one requires some additional investment and usually comes with a period of two, three, four, five years of reduced outputs. 
So literally, it's investing more and earning less, which, of course, to anyone around the world would not be an attractive proposition. And so people are reluctant to do this. So you also then have to provide that safety net that people can make it through that period and without too much of a financial disadvantage. How much of a production loss might that experience during those first few years? Very much depends on the location, on the crop. And this is another thing we have to do. It's not about basically writing one set of guidelines and then one size fits all, rolling it out. You really have to work on that location-specific solution, but it depends a lot on the specific circumstance. At Nestle, you touch farming, packaging, the production of actual food, logistics, recycling. Across that whole chain, where do you see the most promise for decarbonization? Clearly in the supply chain. And unfortunately, that is the hardest part. And of course, you're literally removing greenhouse gas emissions, one kilogram, one ton at a time in so many places around the world. So there's not one factory that you switch around and turn around and then all of a sudden problem solved. It's an incredibly decentralized job. That is why it takes some time to be effective. What about the product itself? Is there a low carbon product? I think there are products that by design have a lower greenhouse gas footprint. And so any plant-based alternative compared to a meat-based one, for example, has that. And consumers like that feature in addition to any potential health benefits. What are you hearing from customers about their willingness to shift to plant-based alternatives to traditional cow-based production? I think there is significant interest out there and for a number of different reasons. So clearly environmental concerns are one. Animal cruelty, especially among the youngest of consumers, that's another key reason to switch to those products. And then for quite a few middle-aged consumers, there is an interest in switching to plant-based simply due to health considerations, because quite often we're offering a similar amount of protein with lower amounts of saturated fat and lower total calories. Many of your products are sold at supermarkets. How do the prices compare for low-carbon versus high-carbon food? So in the case of plant-based, initially, they were more expensive and they still are more expensive. Some of that is simply the fact that they were positioned as more premium products. Some of it is the fact that some key ingredients such as soy isolates, pea isolates, were initially in short demand. I think over time, this will even out. And there's no reason why in the long term, these products should be more expensive because when you look at the way they're being made, it's so much simpler to just basically have the crop and turn into a product as opposed to having a crop, feeding the animal, and then making the product from that. I think a lot of our listeners understand decarbonization in the automotive sector. What's the biggest opportunity for making consumers more aware of the carbon impact of what they eat? I think some sort of standardized consumer-facing labeling would certainly be helpful because right now everyone is using their own terminology. So I could easily envision a world where, in addition to some basic nutritional information, there would also be another label that gives basic environmental information, but gives it in a way that is standardized and harmonized across the industry. And then when it comes to the companies, I think a pretty harmonized carbon disclosure is also very helpful so that investors and other stakeholders can basically form their own opinion. Where do you look to for having standardized disclosures for customers and shareholders? Well, I think for the customers, it tends to be pretty much a country-by-country country approach. It's the same for nutritional values. So this is where you have to respect, you know, sovereignty and people taking care of their consumers. 
within their jurisdiction. When it comes to the corporate disclosures, then there you have a better angle when it comes to international standards. You know, it could be under civil disclosure rules. It could be under international agreements. There has been a very promising project led by the World Economic Forum trying to harmonize some of those. And obviously the audit firms also have an interest in agreeing on the harmonized standards here. From a policy perspective, it may not be a straight line, but from consumer demand, is it a straight line? Are we seeing continuous demand increasing for decarbonized product? So generally it was, then came COVID and then came the inflation wave. And so currently we're also dealing with affordability issues. Understandably, when these products are more expensive, that diminishes some of the growth expectations short term. But I would be very surprised if longer term, you wouldn't see a resurgence of interest because the interest in the environment, interest in animal rights, I think all of those are on the rise. As a CEO, you have to disclose your carbon footprint. What are the biggest barriers for Slee? What are the biggest obstacles to efficient, clean, clear disclosures? I mean, key problem is I don't have to disclose it as a CEO. And so people don't. And we do. We're quite committed to this. And every year you can see our progress. And in fact, we're one of the few companies where in spite of our growth, the greenhouse gas emissions are already below our 2018 baseline. And year after year, you'll be able to track our progress and you'll be able to judge whether we are in line with that net zero roadmap that we issued. But many companies don't bother to disclose. You have no idea where they are. And of course, you have to assume that it's not a priority. And that, to me, creates an uneven playing field and something that needs fixing. Mark, you joined Nestle six and a half years ago. How has your vision of decarbonization and your Nestle strategy changed during that period? I think it gathered intensity. And to me, the key starting shot was that we were taking that pledge according to the science-based targets in 2019. We were basically managing our greenhouse gas emissions consistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement. That means limiting the rise of temperatures to one and a half degrees over pre-industrialized levels. And under those rules, and once you take that pledge, which of course is a highly public thing, within two years, you're required to issue a set of time-bound intermediate targets and also specific steps on how to get there. That's our net zero roadmap, which we issued within one year of taking the pledge. Because frankly, one of the reasons we had here was we didn't want to wait two years. This is an urgent matter and uh, clearly plans rarely get better in the second years of their making. And so... When that came out, it was seen as the gold standard and how to do it in food and beverage. And that really gave incredible clarity to the organization and what they had to do and uh, what the levers were. And it really galvanized the entire firm and added a lot of intensity. When you look at what Nestle needs to learn from other sectors, other industries, and what other industries can learn from Nestle, what would you highlight? I think on the inside of the firm, our operations, this is where we do a lot of benchmarking with other industries to see what the best practice is and uh, what we can do. Where we have no role model to look to is when we look upstream in our supply chain. This is where everyone is learning with us. And so this is literally learning by doing. And sometimes you make mistakes, you find a dead end that's not giving you the results you want. You have to give up on that and then double down on something else that gives you better results. So this is a lot of trial and error. But of course, at the same time, you have to work fast because if you want to meet the first intermediate goal, which is a minus 20% by 2025, there's not a lot of time left. What's the number one criticism you receive either at Nestle or in your industry that you think is fair? I do think in addition to the greenhouse gas footprint, one other key concern that is really visible 
is plastic spillage into the environment as a result of packaging being discarded. And so plastic has a lot of advantages when it comes to product safety and shelf life and avoiding food loss. But obviously, we have to work on better recycling systems. We have to work the spillage of plastic into the environment. And that one is highly visible. Unlike carbon, which is not visible, the plastic model on the beach somewhere, that is really visible. And so consumers are quite concerned over it, rightfully so. What's the most important thing to get the world to net zero? I think consistent effort. That to me is key. And not just in our industry, but also elsewhere. If regulators and the public sort of fade in and out of this, nothing will get done. Because whether it's our industry or other industries, I think all of this is long-term effort. And step by step, we can get there. Mark, thank you for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bid. Make sure you subscribe to The Bid wherever you get your podcasts. This material is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to purchase or sell any securities, funds or strategies to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase or sale would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change without notice. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risks. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. For more information, visit blackrock.com forward slash the bid.